Back to Genesis chapter 22 to continue our study in the, of the life of Abraham. At the end of chapter 21, Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech, but we're going to move into chapter 22 this morning where we see this great test of faith. In studying this, I was reminded of a verse in Acts chapter 9, which record for us the first words of the Apostle Paul, at least the first recorded words of the Apostle Paul after his conversion in Acts verse, chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? After Jesus revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus, and after Paul had trusted Christ, his first response was to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, what do you have me to do? And those, those, that statement is kind of cohesive, isn't it? It goes together. Lord, what do you want me to do? And immediately Paul saw that Jesus Christ was God, Lord, and, had need, and he needed his direction in his life. And that God had saved him, not only to deliver him from hell, but saved him for a purpose. And so he asked that question. It is a question we should ask ourselves every day, isn't it? Every moment of the day, if Jesus truly is Lord in our lives. So often Christianity is just a little formal, legal, legalistic formalism and that sprinkled onto our lives. A little church going, a little money giving, and you know, a little do-gooding and avoiding of certain sins, and we think that's Christianity when it's so much more. It's a relationship with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, with the God of this universe, in which the amazing thing is the Almighty God who transcends creation wants to be involved in your life and mine, and we can look to Him, and we ought to look to Him. Our lives belong to Him. We are His and we need to trust him to direct in our lives. It is that aspect of the lordship of Christ and God's ability to direct our lives that came to, to test in this chapter 22 of Genesis in the life of Abraham where he is called upon to offer Isaac. We might call it the ultimate test of faith. So let's, we read the Hebrews portion, the short version. Let's read here in chapter 22, the first 19 verses. To rec to, that records this event. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him <coughs> and Isaac his son, <coughs> excuse me, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. 
For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham had called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the amount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now this is, in some ways, the most startling and bizarre account in Scriptures, isn't it? When God calls upon Abraham to do what, is, what we would look at as horrible, awful, and even tragic. Offerings to God, human sacrifices to the gods, was common in that day, but it was not acceptable in God's sight, and yet God calls Abraham to do that very thing, and that's what makes this so unusual today. The first thing we might notice in this account is the parallel, the picture of, of, that Isaac presents to us concerning Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's a tremendous picture of the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We see that, first of all, in verse 2, where God told Abraham, take your only son, your only son Isaac. I'm reminded of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Hebrews 11 mentions that concept as well, that Abraham offered his only begotten son, his only son. That son of the promise, that son who was to be heir, that son he loved so dearly. And that's the second thing we see, that he's loved by his father. Jesus said in John 10, 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Jesus was loved of the Father, and Abraham loved Isaac dearly. We see that Isaac was to be an offering. Though he may have not known it at the time, he was the intended offering. Hebrews 10, 12 says of the Lord Jesus, But this man, offered he, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus was that offering for sin. And that's a critical thing to remember, by the way, that Jesus is the one who offered himself for our sins, and that's because Jesus paid the ultimate price because man had the ultimate problem. And that problem was sin, sin that stood between man and God. And Jesus took care of that problem for us on the cross. You see, it would have taken you and I, human beings, all eternity in hell to pay off that penalty, to pay that debt because of the guilt of sin in our lives. But Jesus took that guilt upon him that week so that we could go free. And that's why salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's why salvation is not about you giving something to God or committing something to God. It is about God giving you a free gift, the gift of forgiveness that was given freely in his grace. And the only way you can receive that is by faith. It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what salvation is about. It's about a believing in the substitute who paid for your sins. And when we do that, God gives us the gift of eternal life because Jesus was an offering for sin. The fourth thing we notice here is that is the location. It was, they were to go to Mount Moriah. 
Mount Moriah was the location of the, of the temple. In Jerusalem, it's also the area in which Jesus was crucified. He was crucified in that area, Mount Moriah. Now, some theologians want to say it was, he was, Isaac was offered on the same hill, the same spot. We don't know that for a fact by any means, but he was offered in the same area, carrying through the, the type. We see in verse 6 here that Isaac carried the wood. John 19, 17 tells us Jesus carried his cross at least part of the way when it says, and he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. We see in verse 9 that Isaac went willingly. He went willingly. He did, Isaac didn't know what was going on, but, God, but Abraham, in verse 9, laid him on the altar, and apparently it was not a struggle. He went willingly. He laid him on. There's no mention of any kind of resistance. And Isaac, which is really amazing, which really tells us that he trusted the faith of his father. Jesus went willing to the cross. Luke twenty two forty two, saying, Father, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe that's where Paul got the idea of, Lord, what will you have me to do? Because Jesus surrendered to the will of his father. Then we see that Isaac returned with Abraham alive. Verse 19 says he returned, and verse 5, that was his expectation. He says, we're going to return. Me and the lad are going to return. Now, that was an amazing step of faith. Hebrews 11 tells us where we read, where we read in our scripture reading, says that Abraham believed that God would raise him up. That was Abraham's hope and his expectation because he knew God had made a promise. And by faith, God had made him a promise that Isaac, your seed, will be called. That's what it mentions in Hebrews 11. Abraham was aware of that. So he knew whatever happened to Isaac, he wasn't going to stay dead because God had made a promise that he was going to fulfill through, through Isaac. And, and Abraham's expectation is God would raise him up. He returned alive. And we know that's the glorious exclamation point of the gospel. Jesus rose from the dead. He's victorious. He defeated sin, death, and hell. And he wants to offer that victory to you and I by faith. What a tremendous picture this is. And there's other details you could highlight here, but those are the major ones that portray the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and all he did for us in offering himself as an offering for sin. What's well, One of the notable things here in verses 7 and 8, we see when, when Isaac asked for, where's the lamb? You know, he wasn't sure what's going on. We got everything else, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God shall provide a lamb. We know later he names the place Jehovah Jireh, God, the God who provides. The interesting thing is in verse 13, it wasn't a lamb. It was a ram, wasn't it? A goat, I assume. It wasn't a lamb. And, we, and that causes us to wonder if Abraham's statement was prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who, of whom is said in John 1.29 by John the Baptist, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And when God provided a ram for the sacrifice in place of Isaac, was Abraham's statement prophetic? We don't know for sure, but did he, was he aware that God would provide the lamb for the burnt offering, and that lamb was the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe Abraham didn't know it, but God did. And so everything in this passage points forward to a greater sacrifice, a more important sacrifice. It's really the most important thing we can, we, we can come to understand as human beings is deliverance from the 
penalty and bondage of sin in our lives. That's what we celebrate every day as Christians. The good news that God provided a lamb. You know, mankind tries to provide his own solutions for the sin problem. Good works, going to church, doing your best, giving your all. They all fall into the category of good works where the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. And God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Lamb of God. You know, some of our national holidays, like Memorial Day, we celebrate those who have given their life for Christ. This weekend we celebrate the freedoms that have been secured for us and the independence that we've enjoyed throughout the years. But those are just a reflection of the greatest price ever paid, the greatest cost ever required, and that was the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, loved by His Father, slain from the foundation of the world, the Bible says, because God provided a solution. Promised way back, as we've seen in our study, in the promise of the seed to Eve, that someday that her seed would crush the head of the serpent, and that's what was accomplished at the cross, so that you, you and I could go free. And so the, really, the question presented to every human being in and, and the face of the earth is, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you're right with God? Because apart from Jesus Christ, we're headed for a hopeless eternity. The Bible says, a soul that sinneth, it shall die. But later it says, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And it's in Christ we find new life, and we respond to that by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so when you ask somebody a question, do you know you're going to heaven, you're hoping for a response is yes, because Jesus died for me. It's not because I did something for God, gave something for God, got all emotionally excited about God, wanted a relationship with God, did all these good things for God. There's one answer, Jesus died for me, and I trust him as my Savior. And that's what Isaac pictures here in this chapter, and it's such a tremendous and important picture in the Scripture. But we also see in this chapter some tremendous lessons of faith, because that's what this is about, isn't it? This is a test of faith, isn't it? When God required this of Abraham. Now let's stop for a moment and, and make a distinction between tests and trials, because sometimes the Bible uses the words interchangeably. It often uses trials to represent both, both tests of faith and the trials of our faith. And though they are similar, there are some differences. And both of them provide an opportunity to trust the Lord and His Word, and that's the solution in, in both cases. But a trial is really an unwanted circumstance, isn't it? Something unwelcomed in our life, something undesirable that, that afflicts us and, and enters into our lives, like sick and a stick in the spokes of our life, so to speak. And the test and the trial is whether or not we will look to God and trust God to sustain us and carry us and deliver us in that trial. A test Rather, much like we see here in chapter 22, is an occasion to trust the Lord, to submit to the Word in, a diff in an area of difficult decision. It's a, it's a test when we come to the crossroads of decision in our life, whether we're going to trust ourselves and our own ingenuities, or whether we're going to trust God and submit to His Word, no matter the unreasonableness, the seeming unreasonableness, I should say, of that decision. Decisions that sometimes require us to put God first, and obeying when it doesn't fit our agenda. 
It's a faith decision that maybe contradicts our normal way of thinking, our normal way of doing things. It may cause what we think risks to our safety, security, and well-being in life, insanity in life. But we just choose to trust the Lord. That's a test. It's a test of whether we're really going to believe God's word is true or not. Whether we're going to trust him with our life or not. And though similar to a trial, it is simply a matter of, are we going to really believe the Bible we say we believe in any given situation in life? Both are tests of faith and opportunities, whether trial or test, and are opportunities to trust the Lord in believing his word in any given situation. And we need it. I was visiting with a younger believer recently, and when we came to a point in one of our discussions, and we have a weekly, well, it ends up being bi-weekly, half the time, get-together, and uh, when he came to the point to realize that sometimes there are sometimes believers won't follow the word, won't obey the word, don't trust the word, he said, really? Christians do that? <laughs> well, he's got a lot to learn, doesn't he? Yes, Christians do that. We're still sinners growing in grace. But the reason these reason the test comes is because we naturally and normally think differently than God. And God has to challenge our thinking repeatedly through the truth of his word because our thinking and the darkness of our, of our sin nature always brings us in a wrong direction where the light of the gospel brings us to a place of true rest, safety, and stability in life. And so tests are inevitable. And here we find a great, a, a, a tremendous test in the life of Abraham, but James Chapter 1, where it talks about trials or tests, it's when, not if. When you're tried, not if you're tried. They are inevitable, are, are they not? And we won't grow apart from those tests of our faith. Because those opportunities to, tr to trust God and His Word strengthens our faith. It grows our faith. It grows our knowledge of God and His goodness and greatness and faithfulness and the trueness and of His Word. Because we live in a world that is so anti-God in its worldview, so ungodly in its lifestyle, a world whose prior priorities in life and perspectives in life emanate from a me-first viewpoint. And these things affect the lives of believers because that's the world we live in. Sometimes they're, they're adopted by believers without us even knowing it. And therefore, it's God's work to teach us to think like he thinks rather than like the world thinks to establish a divine perspective or a biblical worldview, you might, if you prefer, in every walk of life, a God-first basis of priorities rather than a me-first basis of priorities, a God-glorifying desire in life rather than self-gratifying desires in life, those are all areas that are often tested that we often justify from our human perspective but God challenges through the teaching of his word. And that's the danger there is in coming to church, by the way, or opening your Bible, God may actually challenge the way you think, might challenge a priority you have, might actually want you to change something. And you can say, I need to change? Well, that's why we're here, isn't it? Because God is affecting change in our lives through his word. Because we naturally evaluate and think different than God. We often operate from an attitude of self-centeredness and self-dependency, and those are destructive dynamics in our lives. Test gives us an opportunity to live from a divine perspective and a God dependency, a God-centered life which brings stability to our lives. And those tests are really opportunities. No one likes to change. No one likes to be confronted with themselves. But that should be delightful to the believer because we're, God's in the process of making us like Christ, is he not? And those tests come that we may have the opportunity to see that the Lord, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now that's what was confronting Abraham here. Tests were sure, and it came to Abraham. 
And how in the world, through this instructions to Abraham, could, I, could anything good ever come? That's the test. And it would have been easy to blow it off, wouldn't it have been? This, is under, this can't be right, according to my logic and my reason. In reality, what God was seeking to do was to strengthen Abraham's faith and develop substance in his life, a real biblical foundation. Decisions of faith based on absolute truth and trusting God with the results. Another thing we see here, and which just jumps, leaps off the page, is that God often tests us in things most valuable to us, things most precious to us. Here it's children. Is there anything more precious to our lives than our children? Abraham's test came in the realm of his long-awaited son, the son that was born when he's beyond childbearing years, a miracle of God. A son who was to be heir of the promise that was made to Abraham. A, a son that God had promised years and years before that he would give to him. You know, this brings to us the question concerning our, pers our perspective in parenting. If we remember to whom do our children belong. That's where we need to start, don't we, as parents? So often we see our children as a delight to our lives and it's delightful to be a family unit. You might say we birthed them, but we know that God formed them, did he not? He is the author of life. He is the one who gives life in the womb. We need to remember that because Psalm 127 one says, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor in vain, who builds it? Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it goes on to tell us that Psalm 127, that children are the heritage of the Lord. They belong to him. And while the privilege of raising children is a blessing, and for those of you who haven't experienced it, coming to the point of an empty nest is, a, is kind of a startling revelation in life because life so much is lived, enjoyed as a family. It's a tremendous blessing, is it not? It has its trials. It has its moments. But it's one of God's greatest blessings in life is to bring children into our, into our lives. And it's especially a joy when we live as a family with God at the center, isn't it? That's when it becomes especially delightful. However, we recognize before God that parenting children is a responsibility before God because they belong to Him. They're on loan, I remember one pastor used to say, to us for a few, number of years. And we have a responsibility to raising and training children to know and live for the Lord. We want to raise children to contribute to the cause of Christ. And then when the, year, the time comes in their lives, it's time to send them out, to let them go, to, sh to shoot them out like arrows out of the quiver, as, this, as the Psalms 127 says, to go out and discover and live out God's gifts and callings in their lives. That's our responsibility. And we trust and trust our children to God because they belong to Him. We must remember that He loves them more than we do. He has an eternal plan for them, which is greater than any plans we might have. And we entrust them to him. And Abraham here to trust God implicitly with the child God had given him. Realizing God's ability to carry out his plan, his love for Isaac. Realizing that in reality, health, safety, and security and stability is of the Lord. That's where it comes from. And we contribute the best we can as parents, but ultimately those things come from the Lord. And we've seen other biblical examples in Scripture of parents having to trust the Lord in extreme situations with their children. You couldn't help but think of Moses being laid in that basket and sent out to sent out into the river. Now, you know, we see the, the rosy side of the story with 
with the uh, princess and her entourage, you know, waiting on the other side of the river. But, you know, was there alligators, snakes? What else, what else could disrupt it? Who else might find what kind of uh, wicked person might come across his baby in the river? That's a, that's a step of faith as God led her to do that, to trust her precious son to, to, to the hands of God. There certainly was, there certain was a lot of uncertainty as that basket was pushed from shore. You couldn't think about of Hannah and Samuel. When Hannah fulfilled her commitment to, to bring Samuel to serve in the temple as a young lad, despite the fact of the wickedness of Eli's sons and the environment they had to live in, and she just sent them out. How old was he, maybe? Five, six, seven, eight, maybe? And just turn him over to a fellow who didn't know how to train his own children. And Eli. That's a step of faith. And so we come to Isaac. Here, when God, at God, when, when you can likely question God, does he really know what he's doing and calling me to this? And so we need to remember to trust the Lord with our children in every walk of life. And as parents, we must recognize, though, that there is a tendency for you and I, because it is so delightful to have children raise children, there's a tendency for life to revolve around our children's needs and wants. And we recognize, especially with babies, I say the babies drive the bus. You know, when they're screaming, you gotta, you got to meet the need. They often drive the bus, the schedule, the details of life. Sometimes when they've had enough, it's time to go home, whether you want to or not, whatever. But too often, we, as they grow, we continue, to, we continue to think that life revolves around them. And while we're to seek what is best for their health and their development and help them prepare and plan for life, we can never, we, we have to be careful not to continue to live a life centered around our children because when the children are this, when we raise the children to be the center of our universe, they grow up to think that the universe is centered around them. That's exactly how they grow up, isn't it? Sometimes a little personal sacrifice, a little inconvenience, a little uncomfortableness is good for children, especially when it's a result of simply trusting and serving the Lord when putting Him first. In doing so, you really teach them who's number one in our lives as a family. We teach them who's at the center of the universe, who's the preeminent one, and that sacrifice is a necessary element of life if we are to be used by God. We prove that we really believe what we're saying, that God is number one in our lives. And if we really believe that, it requires trusting God with our most precious, does it not? And there are times when we have to make hard decisions, of sacrificing something important, whatever the precious thing is, in order to serve God first in our family lives and trust Him with what we think is the risk in our lives. By doing so, we teach our children an example to others what it means to be a servant, that we serve Christ even when it is inconvenient, uncomfortable, because I'm not the center of my universe, Jesus Christ is. And that's what Abraham had to see. This wasn't about making Abraham comfortable. This event was it, and happy. This was a severe trial. But Abraham left for us example that he could trust God with his life and the life of his most precious son because God is a faithful heavenly father. And that leads us to this third point that God often tests us against natural reasoning. That's kind of been the theme, isn't it? 
Now this was, as I mentioned, an unacceptable practice. It was illogical to even think of this. Unthinkable, really. But God called them to this. And it would have been easier for Abraham to say, but. But what about? Years ago, I was involved in a prison ministry. And I had a group of guys that were just really hungry for the word. And we had one fellow, they all had nicknames. We had a lot of fun. We were together for a couple hours every week. We had one guy named Butt John. Because whenever something would come up that didn't quite fit his thinking, he would start saying, but, 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 but. It happened all the time. And so we called him Butt John. And that's our tendency with God. Abraham could have said, but, 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 but. This is immoral. This is irrational. This is unreasonable. You don't see that. Now, maybe this went on in Abraham's mind. It may not be recorded for us, but we don't see it, we don't see it here, does it? Abraham kept faith, kept faith simple. He said, okay. Huh. Complicated, isn't it? Okay, let's go. Hard decision, impossible decision. I'd have been looking for any excuse to be detoured and, you know, break the leg of my donkey so I had to return back and go to the vet or something. But here, Abraham's faith is simple, and that's what faith is. I will trust when I cannot see, we sing. And what we realize, we need to realize is sometimes faith in God seems risky because it's unreasonable, but the risk is from our point of view. It's from our flesh's self-preservation instinct rather than from the perspective that God is able. He is able. And that is the safest place to be, in the arms of God, no matter how irrational, unreasonable, illogical it may seem. It's more safe and secure than depending on my own rationale. Psalm 121, 5.1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. That's where our faith needs to be. And the Bible says if our faith, if we trust the Lord, Simple, the simplicity of faith. We're going to be like a mountain which cannot be moved. Now we know trusting ourselves is shaky ground, isn't it? Building our house on the sand, the illustration goes. But we trust God. And that was the, 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 the rock-solid aspect of Abraham's faith. He knew that if he trusted God, he couldn't be moved. That he was, in, he was the safest place to be. It was the best place to be. And therefore, the confidence of faith here tells us that faith is not a reluctant or tentative leap. It is not, oh, oh no, what's going to happen? It's a, it's a step of confidence when, you, when your decision is based on the word of God. And Abraham's obedience, his action, though others around him may have known, may have known nothing about Abraham's call to do this, Abraham's faith was solid because it was based on God's word to him. It was a solid confidence that God's ways never fails, that he is ever faithful, and it's the only way to be truly find safety and stability and bounty in life. Another thing we see here is, is the idea of the way of escape out of trials. You say, might say, what do I mean? Well, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation or testing make, also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
there is a way of escape. First of all, God is sovereign. He won't test you above what he hasn't, what he hasn't already prepared you for, what you're able. He wants to test you above what you're able. And what you find out is that I'm not able, but God is able. When I've learned to trust the Lord, God will test me to that extent, but not beyond. But he always make a way of escape. Abraham knew God had a way of escape because based again in his faith upon the promise of God, Isaac was going to be the heir through whom the seed would, would come. And he focused on God's promises according to Hebrews 11 in our scripture reading. But Abraham's idea was that, his thought was that he'll raise him from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. We see that indicated in verse 5 here where it says, we will come back to you. Interesting. He's going up with a, with a wood and, 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 the, and the knife to sacrifice his son, and he tells him in verse 5, the, the, his, his couple servants who stayed with the donkey, he said, we're going to come back. We're going to go worship. We're going to come back. And Hebrews 11 interprets that they, to, to say that he believed God would raise him up. And so, but Abraham's way of escape did not come till he moved out by faith. He didn't sit in a pool of tears, crying in despair, God, get me out of this. He said, okay, Lord, I'll trust you. And he moved out by faith. Unreasonable, irrational, illogical, even from some perspectives immoral. What in the world's God up to? I'm going to move out. And as he moved out in obedient faith, God answered Abraham's faith, did he not? He had an answer. But that brings us to the fifth point, that God doesn't always answer our face cry for help the way we expect. Abraham had a plan. was to figure God was going to raise him up. But God had a different plan, didn't he? God had a, another ram awaiting. He intervened. Because God has his own ways of doing things. And I think Abraham... Someday we'll tell you he's thankful for that because if things had gone according to Abraham's plan for a way of escape, he would have had to experience the horror of killing his son and watching him die. But God didn't allow him to go through that. Even if he would have brought him back from the dead, God prevented that from happening, spared Abraham that step. God had a better plan. He just sent a little ram caught in a thicket that would become the offering for sin. Aren't we glad that our Father knows best and we can rest in His care and trust in His plan? And so the sixth point here is God keeps His word. He is faithful, isn't it? He provided that way of escape. And in doing so, He accomplished His will. He was glorified, Abraham was proven, and then Abraham was better off after the fact because of the simplicity of just trusting the Lord. In verses 15 through 18, we see the reaffirmed promise of the Abrahamic covenant that God said, I'm going to bless you. Abraham was experienced in a greater way the goodness and blessing of God because of his willingness to, to step out by faith and trust the Lord each step of the way. You know, it's called the walk of faith because that's what it is. It's a step at a time, is it not? I sometimes am, am entertained when I might watch a ball game or um, once in a while I watch a little bit of golf with some of my grandkids and they, wanna always, they always want me to somehow be a prophet. 
You think he's going to make it when he's putting on the green. You think he's going to blow it because you know, oftentimes you know, kids root against the person they don't want to win. You know, and I say, I'm watching the same game you are. They want to know. They want to know what's going to happen next. And it's just, that's our nature. But if we knew the future, we'd cease to walk by faith. And God wants us to walk in that dependent relationship with him. One step at a time. And God was faithful, and Abraham was better off because of the simplicity of just trusting the Lord. And trusting God and his word, the Bible tells us, brings great reward. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it's rewarding to walk by faith. Psalm 19.11, in that passage speaking of the word of God, says, keeping of them there is great reward. The psalmist often talks about the, the, the delight of the truth of God. And we need to remember as believers that the natural perspective in which we bring to life emanating from an ungodly world, a Satan-influenced culture, and from a sin nature brings disaster. And we need that divine perspective. We need the new information that the light of the gospel brings to our lives. And, we, and when we do, we find this delightful. And we're so settled in oftentimes. What I hear someone's mentioned today something about set in our ways. We're so settled in the way we do things and don't realize that we're missing out. We're missing out laying it all on the altar before the Lord that he might bring the light of his will to our life and we can anticipate God to bring us to a greater understanding of what it means to trust him and to think like he thinks. God in our lives whether he brings trials or tests, is not intending for you and I to merely survive. They're intended to make us thrive. He wants to bring fullness of life to our lives. But he knows that we need to, that he needs to allow things in our lives that will cause us to abandon self and cling to him, die to self and live with him. And that's what these tests are intended to do. And when we, when we go through them, when we bear up, it's like discipline in Hebrews 12. There's a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. And that's what God desires in our lives. Abraham here had his faith strengthened because of his test in this such severe situation. And so we need to keep it simple, don't we? It really starts as Christians with, with our hearts. Are we really surrendered to God, first of all? If we are not, then God's working on that area of our life, isn't he? I resurrendered to his lordship, like Acts 9, 6. Lord, what will you have me to do? My life is yours. Whether it's in my daily decisions and priorities of life or the big picture things of life, Lord, what do you want in my life? And that's a delightful place to be. It's a safe place to be. It's a stable place to be. And then we trust God then in everyday life because life is about sharing the life of Christ who lives in us. We come to recognize that his word is absolutely true and the only final authority in my life. And so it comes down to, are we living life on our terms or on God's? What's interesting here is Abraham was not concerned with the future. Oh, he may have been, but he left that in God's hands. He only knew that he must obey God in the moment, in the step of the moment, and leave 
the consequences to God, and it couldn't be better hand. Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust in the Lord for in, trust in the Lord Jehovah forever, for in the Lord Jehovah there is everlasting strength. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful um, for this such unusual account, Father, such an unusual test of the faith of Abraham, Father. But thank you for the simplicity of that faith. Thank you, Father, for that you are a God who is faithful, and that is the basis of our faith, to trust a God who keeps his word, who fulfills his promises, who seeks our best in your glory. And Father, may we be those who, first of all, are surrendered to you, offered ourselves as a living sacrifice, Let's, and, and, and those who let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, that we may allow you to direct our lives each and every step of the way, that while life might be about a reflection of the attitude of Jesus, not my will, your will be done in every area. And then, Father, may we trust you when things seem reasonable, illogical, things seem to spin out of our control, Father, which maybe is a good thing, because then we can trust you, for you are the sovereign God. So help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.